You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 49. Today, we're sitting down with California-based landscape photographer and mountain climber Claude Fiddler to chat about his lifelong passion for climbing and photographing in the Sierra Nevada. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Outdoor Photography School Digest, which is a summary that comes out on the last Friday of the month of all new Outdoor Photography School content, including additional tips and resources that I think will be helpful, whether that's any courses or workshops that I may offer through OPS or from other sources, including some of our guests. I also include a featured photographer whose work I think you would enjoy learning about, And I share any photography or outdoor industry offers or deals that may also be of interest. I call the OPS Digest your monthly dose of outdoor photography information and inspiration. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy reading, you can sign up for free through the link in the show notes. Hello, my friends. Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that most of you have seen or heard of the John Muir quote, the mountains are calling and I must go. It's been overly used on social media and tourist t-shirts as an inspirational quote, often eliciting the feeling of fresh air and freedom while vacationing in the mountains. But if you look at the origins of this quote, It was in a letter that Muir wrote to his sister back in 1873 in reference to his relentless dedication to studying and understanding the mountains better, the ecosystems within, and how to protect them. And I think this quote in its original intent can be extended to describe our guest today, Claude Fiddler. So let me give you a brief background on Claude. Since the 1970s and before he became a renowned photographer, Claude Fiddler was a prominent figure in the Sierra climbing community, with high standard first ascents in Yosemite Valley, Tuolumne Meadows, and the High Sierra. He has co-authored a climbing guidebook to the range and has worked for many years as a ski patroller and mountain guide. He still lives at the foot of the mountains with his wife and adventure partner, Nancy. His forthcoming book, Inside the High Sierra, is a meticulously produced coffee table book that will delight anyone who loves the High Sierra, fine art outdoor photography, or beautiful books in general. It will be hardbound in linen on the outside with 55 full-color plates printed on Japanese archival paper on the inside. In addition to Claude sharing stories and extensive notes about the images, the book features diverse and insightful contributed essays by Joseph Holmes, Michael Cohen, Laurel Fiddler, his daughter, Peter Croft, Dick Dorworth, and a foreword by Thomas Hornbein. And so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Claude Fiddler. Also, I apologize for the occasional squeaky chair. I was unable to edit it out, but hopefully it just adds to the feeling of being in the same room with us as we chat. Claude, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. It is my pleasure uh, to be here, Brenda. Excellent. Well, I've, I've already given the listeners a brief bio on you in the introduction, but I like to start off interviews with a little retrospective from our guests. And so I was wondering if you would take us back to 1979 when you uh, completed your first month-long winter journey on the John Muir Trail. So could you describe for us uh, what that experience was like and and how it impacted you from that moment onward? Sure. Uh, So the experience was... um, that started my range of light, as I like like to say. Um, I decided that I wanted to be a mountaineer, uh, a climber, 
a photographer and spend my life in the Sierra Nevada. I'd been to the Sierra in high school. I'd done some backpacking trips, but the skiing the mirror trail was so intense. It was, it took 33 days, uh, 11 days of, uh, being storm bound. Uh, my partner Jim Keating and I were hit by a significant avalanche in Leconte Canyon, which we, we really couldn't do anything to travel. Uh, there was no safe zone to travel in. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a wow. Um, but just the, the winter light out there and the, the intensity of the experience, um, I don't. I don't know if I. If maybe I'm an adrenaline junkie, or but I didn't. <laughs> there's there's a lot of that happening during the trip, and I was not a very good skier. But um, uh, the the I hate to use the word magic, but the, just the the light the, the the light was so revealing uh, in terms of what it did to my emotional response. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the mountains, um, I I just wanted to do more of that, and um, so that really I I was at I was at school at UC Berkeley, and um, I'd been a rock climber um, in in Yosemite and in uh, a little bit in Tuolumne Meadows, but not I didn't have a whole lot of experience, um, but that that trip really turned me onto the course of being a mountain person. And from that point on, I conspired diligently to spend as much time as I could in the mountains. I dropped out of college. Um, I, I was already spending my summers in Tuolumne Meadows, but now I, that was it. I was going to live in the mountains. And uh, don't ask me how I thought I was going to make a living um, that, that was, that was an open question. So, um, that's a secondary one. It sounded like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So did you, did you kind of know what you were getting yourself into when you, when you set off on that journey? Um, you know, did you feel prepared and, and did you have any idea what it was that you were going into? To some degree, um, I think your your the the specific question is is about the Muir Trail and did did I feel prepared? Um, I had done I had done some skiing. As I said, I was not a very good skier, and uh, ski mountaineering gear was uh, metal edge skis that had just come out. And Gore-Tex, uh, my my partner Jim, he sewed his Gore-Tex jacket. Wow! Um, yeah, yeah. So um, we we had a VE24 North Face VE24 tent. Um, uh, MSR stoves had just come out, uh, so the equipment was was uh, in. It was not rudimentary, but it was at the beginning of what you would call the modern equipment age mm-hmm. and um uh so i'll back up a little bit we put we put four food caches out along the trail and then it started snowing and then we did a few uh shakedown trips day trips overnight trips mm-hmm. where we made sure that our equipment was uh together we made roped climbers. Now there are skin climbers that you just peel on and peel off the bottom of your skis. Right. Well, we we took we took uh, uh, we went to the hardware store and for a dollar fifty we bought just nylon cord and we tied it in uh, tied figure eights and and then and then we just fed this uh, this sort of big long loop with knots in the bottom of it oh, cool. onto our skis. Yeah. And that's what we use for climbers. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so not only was our were my skills rudimentary, but the equipment was rudimentary, and um, and what we were getting ourselves into, we didn't quite know. We didn't have an ice. We didn't carry ice axes. We didn't carry a rope. We didn't carry crampons. Wow. I mean, and you're lucky we, you got out of that avalanche. 
Oh, uh, it, it was the, it was lucky. The avalanche when it hit us, it, it nailed the tent. It went over the tent and it buried the tent. Wow. And we had just enough room to dig out the door and peek outside, and and you know the the storm cycle was ending. Um, and we definitely could have used an ice axe and crampons at one point in time in the in the trip, but we just had to you know kick very shallow. Um, steps it wasn't even steps just kind of edges yeah we were lucky to make it we didn't have avalanche beacons we had avalanche cords um beacons beacons were not something that was ubiquitous and um and were you guys pulling sleds or we no no we had everything we just had everything on our back and at our first food cache the food uh we didn't we didn't store it uh, as well as we should have, and uh, over half of it was eaten. And so we did an inventory, and we had 10 days of food, stretchable to 10 days of food, which is what it, we needed to get to our next food cache. Well, we were at a point, this is uh, a little tangential, but kind of not in terms of your question about what what happened with my life. Yeah. Um, so... We were really <laughs> disappointed because we had we were hungry and we of course. <laughs> <laughs> and we were and we and 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 we were at a point where it it would have been fairly easy to ski over uh, a, a pass which was four miles away and then down into the Owens Valley and end the trip and we didn't do that and that that moment for me as a mountaineer and a climber um it 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 was i i I faced my fears is too cliche but i made the decision that i wasn't going to retreat i wasn't going to give up Mm -hmm. we were going to keep going and we did it with with some decision making, so it was wasn't just a willy nilly sort of thing. Where yeah, let's charge forward. We're the brave warriors. No, right. we we made a conscious decision, and we kept going, and it, and it worked. And so what that did was I I learned a little bit about decision making, and but I learned a lot about not turning back Mm -hmm. and um so that led to even though i would come up against uh, situations further along in my mountaineering career where i would say um okay you can either say this is it or you can take that step into the unknown and the skill set that I developed mentally and physically to deal with that, um, I still feel it all the time. I still feel it, mm-hmm. but I know the, uh, the mindfulness or the mindset that I have to get into um, to take the next step on a journey that doesn't have a um, for certain outcome. So. Yeah, and it, it's got to be such an interesting decision process too, because you know you're you're assume I assume you're doing a risk assessment too of you know is it safe for me to proceed here, or should I turn around, or or is it a good uh, situation to make that leap of faith in yourself of I'm gonna I'm gonna dig deep and see what I'm made of here and push onward. You know, I I can see how those could be separate decisions. Yes. Um, so I think there, there's, there's an element there of experience that mm. helps with that. And um, so for instance, rock climbing, just how, how this is the risk assessment is, it would be, <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> getting out of here this is this is risky this is um I'm, I'm putting my life in danger and so how do i have to move how do i have to 
in terms of being fluid, being being precise. Um, where do I have to keep my mind as I'm doing this, as I'm putting myself in this risk? And um, um, and 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 I got good at it. I was I I got really good at it. Mm-hmm. And it's a funny, it's, it, but it's a funny thing, you know. I, it, <laughs> I, I was, you know, I just, I just was finishing up a, a write up on on my new book, and 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 a similar fear of, you know, not not. It's and it's not being successful, but it is putting yourself out there into a, an unknown outcome, mm-hmm. and 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 how how do you. Um, how do you move move through that? How do you um, keep yourself together? Um, and uh, it's uh, it's something that I I talk to my daughter about. She's you know when when she's she's just getting into ski mountaineering and a little bit of rock climbing and just driving you know from Colorado. She's going to grad school, driving mm-hmm. out here home to Crowley Lake, and you know the roads are dangerous and. And, uh, and, and she's, we're very close. Our whole family's very close. So she's calling us all the time and not all the time, but frequently. And, um, I'm trying to guide her into that mindset of decision-making. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's interesting because I'm sitting there looking at myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's gotta be really interesting. It is. And and how to translate that to somebody that you love, you know, and yeah. so that they can have that experience for themselves in the same sort of true way that you discovered it in, in yourself, too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I, I had a similar experience up in the Canadian Yukon the first time I had gone up there. I, I traveled for, with a friend for a week and then I traveled on my own for a week. Similar, I wasn't backpacking, so it was a very different experience than what you had. But similarly, I was immediately drawn to the winter light and and its quality and just fell in love with the landscape. And I feel like there's a, a part of me that was left there um, and I can't wait to go back. I've been back, but I it's a place that continually calls me, um, mostly for that light that you were talking about. And, and that feeling of, um, I, I can do this, I did it, you know, it was hard, it was cold, and how to push past that. And, and you learn what you're made of in these experiences, which is really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, so when did you start to study photography more seriously? I, I understand that that came sort of after your initial foray into mountaineering. Is that true? Yeah, um, I, it was... I was familiar with uh, the impact of photographs. Uh, Galen Rao was a was a, a, a good friend, and I climbed with Galen a lot. And I went to one of Galen's first slideshows when I was in high school, and there were ten of us in the room. Wow! <laughs> yeah, hard to believe. And, uh, yeah, that was it. And um, um, but. Galen's photographs and and his storytelling worked really well in the slideshow format, and um, so I was taken by that adventure of photography. But I was also familiar with Ansel Adams' work um, in Yosemite at the uh, Lodge dining room. There were probably fifty twenty by twenty four original Ansel Adams that that went around the perimeter of the dining room. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was a, wow. It was, it was a big Ansel Adams exhibit that you could just walk into. And I would walk into when the dining room was closed and I would just sit there and walk past these images. And they, they transported me to a place with, with the feeling that they evoked. So, um, I I also read a lot. I was very taken with Steinbeck and and Dostoevsky and 
mm-hmm. um, Tolstoy. And I, so, so some light maybe, reading. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, maybe, so maybe I'm saying I. So, so maybe I'm saying I'm a I'm an emotional person, and I, and I am, and I, uh, so yes, after that mountaineering experience, because it, it was so powerful, and uh, I knew what a photographic image could evoke. Um, and I did carry a camera and I did document the trip and I did uh, come away with one photograph that really impressed me. And um, and then again, I knew Galen and uh, my friend Vern Clevenger was also a photographer and Howard Weimer, who was a, the Ostrander ski hut ranger. He was also a photographer using a actually a view camera and um, so I had a little bit of an introduction by way of the people I knew mm-hmm. and my dad gave me his old 35 millimeters Kodak with a Zeiss lens on it and um, and I s- started taking pictures now when I say I started taking pictures I did very little photography with a camera most of my photography was done just walking around and trying to put together um, compositions, shapes, uh, forms, lights, how they interacted. And I knew nothing technically, zero, zippo. You know, only thing I knew was, you know, if you stop down the aperture, you get more depth of field or, as I like to say, depth of focus. Mm-hmm. And... Um, um, but I didn't know how transparency film reacted. I didn't know the difference, but you know, negative and transparency film, why, why you would use one or the other, um, how to print. And, but especially when I looked at a scene and I would be responding, uh, to the light that was happening. Um, I would be awake to, that get in that revelry Mm -hmm. but I didn't know what to do with it I didn't know how to translate that into a picture and I and and that is that to this day you know my my mantra is I'm pointing the camera at a picture I'm not pointing it at a photo I'm pointing it at a picture and if it isn't a picture then I, I don't bother. Um, and I, I never, even with a 35, I never took many photographs. And, um, so could you, could you explain a little bit more? I've heard, I've heard different people talk about, um, you know, creating an image versus a photo versus a picture. So I was wondering, uh, could you expand on that thought line a little bit more about, um, you were saying, I, I, I'm not taking a photo. I'm taking, making a picture. So uh, what's, what's so, that distinction? Yeah, sure. One of the one of the um, examples or easiest ways for or the way I thought of it was with with Van Gogh, and Van Gogh would make a picture of the scene through his compositions, and. Um, so if you see, if you look at a valley with uh, colorful trees and light in it, back to a mountain, back to a set of clouds that's dramatic or at least distinctive. So you can point the camera at that and you've made a photograph and you might even call it a pretty photograph, but you have not you have not revealed any seeing as to why it is distinctive, unique, or compelling. Mm, you've, mm-hmm. you, you, that's all, all you've done is gone, that looks neat, click, and you've taken a photograph. Now, if you make a picture, you're going to say, okay, what okay what are the important elements in here how am i going to arrange them 
but how am I going to how am I going to reveal those elements in the rectangle or in the square? And do I have to move to the left, move up, move down? Um, you may or may not have time to do that, but and, and not for the sake of just doing something that's different, but something that actually makes someone see all of those elements in that frame and say, wow, I really see those lit up trees. I really see that color. I really see that shape in the background. I really see that the importance of that sky and why, how, how it is related to the rest of the elements in that composition. And um, if one, and that turns it into a picture of the scene, mm -hmm. it doesn't just take, turn it into something just maybe a step above a snapshot. And um, I, I think the example, if, if you look at, a, uh, if you look at a lot of, if you look at landscape photography and you look at the composition that the compositions that are made by photographers, you can say, well, they're, they're very straightforward and linear. Most of the time they go, they start at the front and they go to the back. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's fine. And they're symmetrical left and right. Okay. That's fine. But that's not, you haven't created a picture. You've just stood there in front of the scene and, and the light has overwhelmed you and you've, and you've made a photograph. But you haven't said, okay, does this all really work in terms of movement? The light's there. That's great. The color is there. That's great. It's symmetrical. Left, right, front, back. That's great. But is it a picture? Have you revealed anything about this landscape or about this person or about this street scene or about this room? No. Pointed your camera at the obvious and you went click. So what is that what is that key element, would you say? You know, if a, if a composition has in it, you know, beautiful aspects of nature and it has all of those things you were saying, you know, maybe it has good leading lines, good color, good good tonal contrast, interesting light. Um, what what is that that extra little bit that's missing that is needed? Is it um, a relationship between those elements that makes it more compelling or more personal personal level of expression, or is it um, just a totally unique perspective, or is it something in the landscape that is a story that's being told, you know, what, I guess I'm trying to tease out, you know, do you think it is input from the photographer in terms of relationships that are drawn between elements in the scene and what they're choosing to include or exclude from the frame? It's movement. Movement. It's, okay. it's movement. It's, it's, and again, I'll go right back to Van Gogh. When you look at a Van Gogh, his compositions just not scream isn't the right word, but powerful with their movement mm -hmm. they move they they move out and left back and right back out and they're powerful powerful mm -hmm. geometries that exhibit movement and so when you say uh, are the for how forms are related that's that's i think not i think i know where like i said you look at most photographs and it's and and, and it's Start in the front, go to the back. Well, oh, gee, and then it, it, it's, it just goes straight to the back to whatever it is, the mountain, the sky, and then left and right, it's balanced. Yeah. That's all it is. They, it's, it, you can say oh, the, the forms are, they're very, they're balanced and they're symmetrical and, they're, and, and they, they lead themselves from the front to the back. That's all you've done. You've gone from the front to the back. You haven't gone, you haven't gone left to right, right to left. And think about any of, just think about Van Gogh's compositions. And they just, they travel through that frame yeah. in, in, in such a strong way. And the, the next one that, I, that I've thought about recently is the idea 
or the concept. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is there is some work out there. I've seen a few examples where someone will take something that's very um, uh, dull, mundane, kind of snapshotty, but then in, in a series, they've presented the sense of what it is like to be in that place at that time mm-hmm. and how they feel about it. And then if they translate that feeling in their photographs, that's something that I think is conceptually different from mm-hmm. saying, here's a beautiful sunset, sunrise, dappled light, whatever you want to want to call it, which I mean, I, I do plenty of that. I, I can't, you know, we all just kind of can't help but when we're in that revelry. But that is an interesting, um, an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I don't have a, I, I, I know what conceptual photography is, but I haven't wrapped my head around whether you know, that's something I really like, or if it's something I've just come to recognize um, and appreciate. Um, But I don't think a whole lot of landscape photographers think about that. You know, there's, you know, the other, the other composition is fill the frame, fill the frame with a texture, a pattern, uh, whatever it might be. And, um, and that's, that's a classic one that has, no movement to it. There's the, fill the frame with the classic was the flower blossom, but then extend that to cracked mud, extend that to um, frost on pine needles, extend that. You know, just think of any one of a number of fill the frame photographs, and and there's not a very original idea there. I, I'm not. I'm not denigrating. You know that it's beautiful. It's it's compelling at the moment. But um, you know, there's there that that idea has been um, is out there, mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with repeating the idea. But I think as once photography reaches a, a you know a particular level of thinking, you have to start wondering. You know, is that is that has that been done before? Am I repeating myself? Am I repeating someone else? And um, those are those are things I I consider um, a lot when I'm out there. And you ask that you know perspective up down. Do I have to hike up a thousand feet? Do I need to be down? Am I going to look up? Am I going to just be straight on the straight on view with a background? Um, all of those things are also concepts of composition and i think it's uh, important as someone evolves as an artist that they ask themselves those questions and uh you know edward weston if you look at edward weston's evolution or transformation whichever word you want to use there i think evolution for edward weston because he became more complex mm-hmm. um but you know edward weston in his early work imposed Edward Weston on his compositions. And what I mean by that is he went, okay, I'm going to take a picture of these rocks and this formal geometry of these rocks. And this photograph is going to say, this is an Edward Weston. This is an Edward Weston set of rocks. This is an Edward Weston nude. This is an Edward Weston. And then later on in his career, he you look at his landscapes or um, or his, his color work from Maine, and and it's it's just done really beautifully compositionally and, and movement wise. But there's he is not saying I'm going to do something here that says this is an Edward Weston. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do some overwhelmingly strong geometry that 
you just can't, you, you, you're going to know right away. You can put the Edward Weston label on it. It's interesting as, you know, yeah. there's a photography's got a lot to think about doing. And I, and it's, and it, to me, it's making art, you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. That's what's so exciting and revealing and, and open-ended. Right. It's making art. And when you're talking about Edward Weston, it sounds like he evolved from having a personal style, which is something that I think a lot of people, some people anyway, aspire to have in that they want to be known for, oh, that's a so-and-so's piece of artwork, whether that's photography or anything else. And um, But it sounds like you're saying that Edward over the course of his career and his development as a photographer, as a creator, as an artist, took his style out of, of his artwork in a way. Is that accurate? Yes, that's, that's accurate. That's, that, that is what I'm saying. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, if you look at his color work that from Maine, that it's, it's not just a pretty picture of whatever a harbor or, or a um, dockside scene or a scene from the, the South, um, you know, an abandoned plantation comes to mind. Um, he was deliberate. <laughs> he stood, he stood within, he stood at the square inch that he needed to be to make a picture. But, he, but back to what your, the comment and question, yes, that is, that is accurate. I, I don't I don't think that there was um, of course I didn't know him but but that's what I just see in his photographs um, that I see someone else might say well you're really overthinking Edward Weston Claude but <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> well so what is your take then on you know you were saying earlier that at least early on in your photography journey and perhaps even still now, you, you spend more time sort of composing images in your mind than with the camera. And so I'm curious about, you know, what is your approach in terms of planning images and pre-visualization as opposed to just being open to whatever nature is offering up in that moment and, and being spontaneous to that? Um, well, I... I I used a, I exclusively used a large format uh, camera for, I don't know, 30 years or something like that, with one lens on it, a 150, so a six-inch lens, basically, sort of a 50 millimeter for um, full-frame 35 millimeter people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I found that liberating. I, I didn't. I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think about, um, having, having, a the subject take up more, more of the rectangle by using a telephoto. I didn't think about wide angle lenses and getting up close and, and using, using, you know, the near far with a wide angle. I, I just didn't, I didn't do that. And, and, um, that was, that was me and my scene was, um, you know, there was, I was just, I was a mountaineer. And so this gulf of air in front of me, you know, was affected me. Mm-hmm. And, but back to your question about my approach. So the large format camera suited, suited me. They suit, it suited who I was. Maybe it suited because I, I wasn't that talented and, and, so I, you know, I didn't trust myself to take a bunch of photographs. Um, and, and I always used a viewing card. So I would sit there with the viewing card and I always, of course, held it six inches away from my face because that was the only lens that I had. Right. And, 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 um, um, and then I would just move if I wanted to include or exclude something in the frame. And, my approach to photography was that I wanted to experience the place and I wanted to experience the place. And I, and I've just thought about this recently. 
I'm 65 and I've been pounding around in the Sierra mountains and actually we say the Arctic since 2004, I've been going to the Brooks range mm-hmm. in Alaska. Nice. And, um, and, and um, so I, I, I read maps, lots and lots and lots of <laughs> map reading and, 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 and I would say, I, I need, I need, I want to see that, whatever, that lake, that meadow, I can see that tree line. I can see that peak and what its shapes are. And, and I want to see that. And I want to see the light, the way it travels through that canyon. And, and so I did a lot of that. If that, I, that's not necessary. That's not really pre-visualization. And that's not taking pictures with serendipity. That's, um, that, that's taking more of an approach that this is what I'm going to be looking at when I get to this particular spot. Yeah. And, um, and I really am a, a firm, at least for myself, the, the, because I used a four by five, um, it took a, it just, it took a lot of years to come up with, um, a, a portfolio um, of really carefully made pictures, um, just because all those elements have to come together: the composition, the 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 light. And I I would just blow off if the light wasn't happening. I just I wouldn't take a picture. I would just leave. I'd just go. Um, that didn't happen. Yeah. Even though the composition was just absolutely perfect. No light, no that my hat my adage is I start I said it in nineteen eighty eight. I said no light, no image. And mm-hmm. I just I, I I wouldn't I didn't take I wouldn't do it. Serendipity, maybe a few times, at least in the Sierra. The Sierra is a different landscape than other places. And that's another thing that I've come to realize. Um it's different from obviously it's different from the Southwest or back East or whatever. And, and, um, and so maybe there's, there are more moments when you stop, want to stop and something is, uh, compels you to take, make a photograph, um, in the Southwest. And I know that that happens a little bit more often for me in Alaska but I, I'm I'm more cautious about just stopping and say, "Ooh, look at that!" Or click, click, click. <laughs> I don't. I I I really. I've always just stopped and said, "Does that does that really work in in a whole bunch of different ways?" Mm-hmm. It is does this is this really a picture? of something or is this just a pretty picture of a place right yeah so uh out of curiosity do you still photograph with a large format or medium format and have you switched to digital at all or yes yes i switched in 2009 i started using a digital uh camera and i wish i'd actually i wish i waited a little bit longer and i wish i knew a little bit more about digital before i started using them but to answer your question, I use a, a Fuji GFX 100S, mm-hmm. and, and um, I actually have two lenses. And I did I, part of that reasoning is I always the, the, one of the worries with having only one lens. You, you know, you go, oh boy, what if I somehow break the lens? Um, right. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> There's no backup. So that's what I that's what I use. And um, my methodology has has changed to accommodate uh, the digital process. I, I was very, I got very fast with a view camera. I mean, it, the the whole uh, mystery and mystique and uh, about how a view camera is supposed to be this difficult thing to use. I could set up a view camera and take a picture in two minutes. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just it was just easy. Yeah, and it is easy. It just becomes very easy to use if someone gives you the right um, lesson on 
because all the other stuff of twisting it into a pretzel, you know, that, that just, that just doesn't happen in landscape photography. Yeah. So has, has switching to digital changed your process? You know, it sounds like with a large format camera and, and your, your own personal desire with how you approach composition is to approach it with quality over quantity. But I think in the digital world, it's so much easier to, uh, have quantity overtake quality, <laughs> you know, yeah. a lot of people, they, the, the whole spray and pray and, and that kind of approach. And I, I don't imagine that you've gone that direction, but I'm just curious if having the accessibility to, to take a whole bunch of different types of compositions of the same potential picture, uh, do you find yourself doing that more now that you have the flexibility of digital? No, I, I, I do not make a mountain of mistakes for a molehill of success. <laughs> I do not, I do not do drive-by shootings. Yeah. I, I, no, it, it has not changed my approach at all. Well, that's good. But I am aware of, um, you know, the abilities of digital to back button focus and, or do a stacked image if, if needed. Right. Um, can I take more photo, more exposures, leaving the camera on, on tripod, leaving the camera up there? just making more exposures well you'd be a fool not to use you know that that uh, what was at your disposal there right so um i would like to take more street photographs and in particular where, where that's coming from i'm going to do a himalayan trip in 2023 i've been to the himalayas um twice and um, um i was on mount everest in 1983 and um, there are people there. There's a culture there. There are street scenes that are um, really interesting. And so I'd like to do more of that. So that would mean my, but I found, I, this, that's, I found even when I did street photography, I, so in 1983, I went to the West Ridge of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. and, and I was, we were in Kathmandu to start the uh, expedition. And even the street photographs that I took, I was still sitting there, you know, in one spot. And this is street photography for like 10 minutes and just, you know, trying to figure out the composition. There was no, and I had unlimited film. Kodak was a sponsor of the trip. I had as many <laughs> rolls of film as I wanted to shoot. Yeah. And I just, I didn't do it. So I think that answers your question. That yeah, yeah. Digital has not changed my approach. I imagine it's lightened your load a little bit, though. <laughs> and so what, what was that like? I had it pared down to really a really light load. My camera with lens weighed five pounds. I used a two-pound uh, Gizzo Studex uh, tripod with a tiny ball head on it. And I, I had, I, I did one, you know, the center post thing. I, I drilled yeah. a hole through the center post, attached a piece of cord, and then I would weight the center post with my, I'd hang my pack off it and then dump rocks on my pack to keep the camera stable. Yeah. Um, but it was, I don't know, let's see, six by eight by 12 or something like that, or 14, 14 probably the uh, size of the camera bag. And then there, you know, I had a changing bag and a dark cloth and a spot meter. Um, I I would carry three film holders. Change I didn't change film all that much, but um, digital. I, I added some things and I took some things. It's like Huntington Witherall said, "We all carry fifty pounds of lightweight gear." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny. Anyway, when when you were doing your mountaineering and and lugging around your large format camera and everything, um, I mean, you've got your climbing gear, you've got your uh -huh. food, water, and all the uh -huh. camera gear. How much weight were you carrying? I, I made the mistake of, of weighing my pack one trip and I weighed 83 pounds. Oh my gosh. So, um, I can't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't do that anymore, but I, I'm, I'm sure I'm up there in the 65 pound range. Yeah. Um, but I'm very, 
cautious about the way I design trips. I don't go over the passes that I did when I was in my twenties or thirties. And and I'm, and I make sure that, you know, it built in time off without the pack. Yeah. Um, So that's just uh, experience being a great teacher and, and I don't, I don't carry the climbing equipment anymore, mm-hmm. which boy, that really, that, that did it, you know, Yeah. Um, a rope and a rack and climbing shoes and blah, 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 blah. Right. I can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Climbing to climb at a high level, it, 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 it just a total dedication. Yeah. I don't have that. I, it's, a, it's amazing to me. I said, why, you know, I just went, where the heck did the time come from? Right. Huh. Yeah, I Gosh. understand. I, I'm not a climber, uh, but I used to be a hockey goalie, an ice hockey goalie. Oh. And <laughs> and then once I had a couple of injuries that, you know, and I played as an adult, you know, well into my 30s. And and once I stopped playing, it, it just really impossible for me to go back now. Like Like you're saying, to play even at a low level would require so much body training and, and, you know, work to not get injured, to do those moves on the ice that, uh, it's like, you're either all in or not at all. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. My, my brother-in-law's, uh, well, one of them still plays hockey and anyway, yeah, photography just takes up, takes up a ton of time and, and I'm not willing to give that up. Yeah. Um, well, so I understand that you have a book coming out uh, that mm-hmm. represents the last 35 years of this deep exploration that you've done of the High Sierra, and it's called Inside the High Sierra. And um, right now, at the time of this recording, it's on pre-order, and I believe that it's going to come out in the spring. Is that correct? It is. And um, um, if, if you, Inside the High Sierra is the name of the uh, website, and there is a um, you can take a look at the uh, a book preview, uh, I think 18 pages of the book, and then there is a pre-order and there is a pre-order discount of 10%. Uh, that's what I've been doing for the last two years is putting the book together. Yeah. So tell us ab- about the book itself and what was the process like of going through 35 years worth of images and, and deciding on the photos and what order you would present them in the book. And what did that whole process look like for you? Um, first of all, um, just, just to say something about, about books and, and when the time is right. So I've had three monographs of my work published, um, Chronicle Books, Chronicle Books, and then the Yosemite Association. And there, there, there is a time when it's right, when the work is mature. And this is the point after 35 years that I believe my work is mature. My, I was, I'm very proud of and, and uh, of my other efforts, but they, the quality of the work pales in comparison to this effort. And that's a admonishment to the younger set out there. You've been photographing for three to five to seven years. You aren't ready for a book. It's you. You will look back on that and go, "Uh, should have waited." Mm-hmm. And I, as Ansel Adams said, uh, he said, "The work is superficial if you haven't spent the time." And um, I also just read Barry Lopez, Horizon, and uh, Horizons. And um, until you can get to a point where you've traveled and experienced a place that the memories start coming back about particular visits or experiences, you're not ready. It's Mm -hmm. not it's you 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 haven't fully been there yeah it's only now after 20 years of trips to the brooks range that i think that i have a body of work that is worthy of the place Mm -hmm. um and 
So here, but back to your question, the, the process. So calling the images was not hard. I only have 320 images from the Sierra. Wow. And, and, um, and of course those are ranked and I, and there were 55 that, um, maybe, uh, two more since, since I, the book that I've, that I've taken. Um, and that's it. So 2020 was the last year and 2022 is coming up. Um, two years ago, I said, I, I think this is, I, I, I've got it. I, I've, I've got the body of work that I think is ready. And, um, there's a, there's a lot of things and, and my work connects back through the mountaineers of the turn of the century. I, I actually rescued the oldest peak summit register from, in the Sierra from 1895. Oh, wow. And it, and it had John Muir listed as the Sierra club president. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a cool thing to do. So, so there's this connection and I knew those original climbers i you know uh, i knew them i talked to them and and so the connection from john muir through the early sierra mountaineers through myself through the photographers through ansel adams through joseph and lacan through joseph holmes my friend joe and and myself and 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 then the also, Michael Cohen, his wife, the artist Valerie Cohen, um, Dick Dorworth, and uh, my daughter Laurel and Peter Croft. We are not my daughter Laurel, but we are going to um, not be here in another 25 years, 20, 25 years. But the connection, and the connection is going to be gone. And so that was an important perspective that I had. I went, wow, we're all getting older and we have this life in the Sierra and the, the younger generation is, is the younger generation. They're moving on. They're, they're doing their thing and they're, and, and they're in, involved with their pursuits and, and that's where, you know, that's, that's, that's the inevitability and that's where it should go, where, where the legacy of the Sierra, so to speak, should go is to the next, to pass it on. It should go to them. But this story hasn't been told. It hasn't, it hasn't been expressed. Mm-hmm. So that was a part of it. So um, back to the process then. So then I said, okay, I've got it. I knew, I knew what I wanted the book to look like. I had four essayists who I, I knew, I mean, I'm friends with them or they're my daughter or I know them. And so I had that. Um, I wanted to write down uh, what my experiences were with each photograph because Franz Lanting told me one time, he said, if you can't write about it, <laughs> it's not any good. Right. So I went, uh, okay. Uh, so, so. Yeah. Went, well, it's okay, kind of, kind of goes back to what you were saying with your, the memory of a place. You know, if you don't remember the place, then maybe you haven't been there enough. Right. Right. You haven't connected with it deeply enough yet. So then the last part of this, so I had the design of the book. I, I knew a book designer um, that, that I could, you know, she would really do a great job if I said, look, this is the look and feel of, of the book and how, how it's going to be laid out. And then the last part was I had um, the full, so Joe Holmes, my friend, Joe Holmes, Joe wrote about making a Sierra photograph picture. And I had the opportunity to um, have Tom Hornbein write the foreword. Who is Tom Hornbein? So Tom Hornbein did the first descent of the West Ridge of Mount Everest in 1963. And it mm. was an incredibly bold ascent. And the book that was um, that Tom did about the climb was a uh, Sierra Club large format book 
So I don't know, you know, if the audience is familiar with those, but those were the be all end all of photography books back in the day. You know, Elliot Porter had, I don't know, five of them published and, and uh, no, Ansel Adams wasn't, he never did a um, Sierra Club largely. I know he did the New York Graphic Society. That was Yosemite in the Range of Light. Um, but um, so Thomas, uh, his, that book was, was and is to me the most beautiful marriage of word and image, mountaineering image that I've ever seen mm. to this day. It's gorgeous. And it was, it changed my life. When I was 14, we had a copy in our high school library and I would just sit there and look at those images. And, and I, of course I read the book and it was, it's a very moving story, gripping. Yeah. And Tom's alive. And I asked him to write the foreword. Wow. He's only been to the Sierra a few times. and. He said, well, I don't know. Why don't you send me a, a few more, a little bit more information? And uh, so I sent him six photographs. And he said, I've got to do this. Wow. And, and he's 92. And he lives in Estes Park, Colorado. He went on to become the... Uh, department head of the anesthesiology department at the University of Washington. So he had a long and distinguished medical career um, and um, practical and in research. And he's sharp as a tack. And um, and he was, he is one of my, he did one of those things that just changed my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I, we all have those little vignettes that move us in, in directions. And Everest the West Ridge was one of those, one of those little detours or <laughs> left turn here. <laughs> right. <laughs> A fork in the road. <laughs> so, well, it's, so, it's amazing because it sounds like it was kind of a full circle experience for both of you, you know, like here, your, your hero who, who inspired you so much as a teenager is now, writing the the forward to your book and it was your images that came out of a life of passion and, and photography and love of the mountains that was inspired by him that that inspired him to agree to write your forward and 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 I bet that brought him back you know to oh, his he, early he, days yeah he he said he, well we we both had Dave Brower wrote the forward to Everest the West Ridge and to my first book um the highest Sierra Wilderness of Light, and um, and as Tom put it, um, which was so he said uh, because I went I went to the Hornbein Couloir, twenty seven thousand two hundred feet on wow. Mount Everest, and he he said Claude, it was inevitable that we would meet. <laughs> <laughs> so it just took so, ninety two years. <laughs> <laughs> it was it, it, it was so yeah, yeah um the biggest thing for me with this book is i i said i want to make an object dot so i wanted to make an art object mm-hmm. um i just i i wanted everything about it to just be this is this is not just a book of some guy's pictures or photographs. This is a work of art. This is this is all put together to be something something of import. Well, you're you're sharing a legacy, your own, and the, this long lineage that you were talking about of the early mountaineers to the photographers that all have shared this passion for the High Sierra. And you're you're portraying that through your artwork, this legacy. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I will definitely put the links to the book and your website in the show notes. Before we wrap things up here, are you up for doing a lightning round? Oh, sure. I don't know what that is, but I think I th- I've heard you do a couple of these. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just uh, ask you a bunch of questions. First thing that comes to mind. Okay. 
So uh, what's one piece of gear that you can't live without that's not your photography gear? Gore-Tex jacket. All right. <laughs> what is a composition that you still hope to create someday? One that introduces a new concept. In the mountains or? Anywhere. Nice. In your opinion, what is the best light to photograph in? Evening. Yeah, I I prefer evening over morning myself, even though I'm a morning person. (laughs) If you could give one piece of advice to a younger version of yourself, what would it be? Um, Go back to college. Hmm. Why? why? To study writing. Oh, interesting. Have you felt writing uh, is a good thing to marry with your photography? Yes. I I, I actually learn how to type. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are it's a key skill. I, I learned how to type in high school and I'm so glad I did. So final question. Uh what does connecting with nature mean to you? Deep involvement. Deep involvement with, with what? Deep oh uh, deep involvement with myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Find finding your your core. Yes. Yeah, I understand that. Well, Claude, this has been really an interesting conversation. I so appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with us your stories and your perspectives and your reverence that you have for the natural world. And it's just the emotion that you feel around it. I'm I'm sure people can feel it just in your voice and in listening to what you have to say. And I'm sure they will experience it in your pictures as well. So thank you again for coming on. And I will point people to your website and the website for your High Sierra book. And is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, thank you for having me. And and, um, you're welcome. And, And back at you. That was great. Excellent. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're welcome. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Claude Fiddler. And again, you can find out more about his new book at InsideTheHighSierra.com and his photography on his website at ClaudeFiddler.com. Again, thank you, Claude, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you're loving the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would take a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which you can do directly on the podcast website at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. Rating and reviews help the podcast reach new listeners, and it also shows potential guests that we have a happy and engaged listenership. So thank you so much for taking a minute to do that. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll share a photography tip and or answer your submitted questions. So if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in the episode description, or you could head to outdoorphotographypodcast.com and be able to record it there. Until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.